Well, good morning once again. How are you? All right. Back several years ago, we had developed a game that we did with our youth group, and we called it Where's Waldo? And Where's Waldo, if you've ever seen the book, is this book you open up and there's just cluttered with lots of people and you're supposed to pick out this one specific character in the book. And then as you go forward in the book, the, he has friends, and he has a dog, he has objects that he's lost. And so we developed kind of a scavenger hunt version of that in our youth group where we went to the park mall to play this game. And so every summer we would go, and when they would get to the mall, we would give them this packet, and they would open it up, and they would have to go to the food court to get their next packet. And each kind of packet helped them progress farther in the journey. And so the next phase, they would find, they would have to find these ribbons. And we had taken these red ribbons and tied them all over the mall and just like literally cluttered them. They hated us, by the way, um, at the mall. And they would have to find them, and once they found 20 of them, they could get their next clue, and they would open their packet, and there was a person they had to find in the park's mall. And so you have these teenagers in groups running around through the mall, and about halfway through this, I get a phone call. And one of my students says, yes, the police have us lined up against the wall at gunpoint. Not not really at gunpoint, I'm joking. Um, They have us lined up against the wall. And so I said... Okay, and then the policeman interrupts the kid and says, let me talk to him. He said, sir, I have some of your kids down here in the mall. And so I I go down to the mall, and when I get there, and and by the way, just a second, I might have some 13-year-old boy moments this morning with my voice. (laughs) So if I do, just bear with me. But as I, I get there, There are two groups of five or six kids lined up against the wall in the mall. And there's like three policemen standing with their arms crossed just staring at them. And I'm thinking in my head as I get there like, this is not how I picture this game going. And what we found out is earlier in the day, there was a group of teenagers that were walking through the mall, rushed a store, stole a bunch of stuff, and ran out. And so security was like on really high alert. And our little game was not a really welcomed activity at that particular moment. They had these signs that were leading them to an objective, that were helping them to get a bigger picture. And yet in the middle of this, the police interrupted our fun and ask us to discontinue the game because they had a lot of employees of the mall that were really worried about our groups running around the mall. So in this series, one of the things I want to do is kind of help give you some clues as we read through and we look at the Gospel of John to help you see what is unfolding. And as... John finishes the story we're going to look at this morning. He says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples 
believed in him. So this was the first sign that Jesus did that revealed his glory, that helped them see fully his glory. And the first sign he does is this miracle where he turns water into wine. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were the Son of God, and if I were the Savior of the world, and I wanted people to know who I was and get a full picture of my glory, I would not start with a little party trick. I would do something magnificent and something amazing and something grandiose to say, this is who I am. I would raise someone from the dead. I would part some waters. I would do something spectacular to start with a bang. Just so people would know, this is who I am. But he doesn't. Um, Reynolds Price is a professor at Duke University, an English professor. And he writes this, Jesus' inaugural sign... You have that slide, David? Jesus' inaugural sign is a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight. And he says, this is how I know it's true. This is how I know that this gospel is true. This is how I know this story is true. The very first thing he does to show who he is is something insignificant by meeting a need. It's a mere social oversight, and yet he offers this miraculous solution. But as we begin this series, I want you to have a little context as to what John is doing. Because as I said, these are signs that are designed to lead you somewhere. For you to get a picture of what John is trying to tell you, I need to give you a little bit of context. And and so I'm going to begin, and some of this you know. But I don't want to assume everyone knows and understands this. I want to just kind of go back really quick. And these aren't going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read them from the very beginning of the story. This is in Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice how he begins, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. Skipping down a little bit further in the story, the the first chapter of Genesis is this poem about creation. And then Genesis 2 and 3 move to this narrative version of the creation story. Verse 5 of chapter 2, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground, but the streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. A little later in the story, he says, And the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
And then he realizes that it's not good for man to be alone. And he says, Then the Lord God made woman from a rib he had taken out of man and brought her to the man. And he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his, fle- to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And then, as you know in the story, it turns. They have communion with God. They're one. They've become one flesh. And then sin enters the picture. And after they've sinned, after they've had this confrontation with God, it says, So the Lord banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which they were taken. And he drove the man out. And he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so this is the creation account from Genesis and how the story begins. God speaks and the world is created. God, through his word, is creating the world. God, through his word, is creating the world. And then sin enters the picture. And with sin comes nakedness and vulnerability and shame and this separation from God. And then God begins this movement with this nation that he calls and that he loves and he shares with and he gives them a purpose and yet even though they have a purpose, they seem to get distracted from that purpose. And then he gives them the law and even though they have the law, they're still disobedient to the law. It's interesting that in the beginning, God creates the world from his word but man reshapes the world through disobedience to his word. This is how the story begins. And so John begins his story in a very similar way. In the first chapter, John begins his story this way. In the beginning. Sound familiar? The exact same way Genesis begins, John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And skipping down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God is again creating the world through His Word. In the beginning... God speaks, and the world is created. And the world seems to go in an unhealthy direction because sin has entered into the picture. 
And then John, as he's writing his gospel, tells you about this God who is recreating the world through his word. Because his word has become flesh and made its dwelling among us. So this is the context that John is writing his story. And he wants you to see there is a new world that is being created right here in the midst of this old world that is passing away. There is this new world that is being shaped and formed by the word. Because what we learn is words have the capacity to reshape worlds. You know this. You might not ever say it like this, but you understand this. Because there are times when you are having a great day or a great season of life and someone can say something to you that totally sends your world into a downward spiral. Like everything was fine and someone spoke to you words that were discouraging or hurtful. And then all of a sudden, you have gone from this place where you were feeling great about everything to this place where you're hurting and questioning and wondering. But words can also create a positive world. Because you can have those moments where you're struggling and where you're hurting and someone can speak a word to you and that word has the capacity and the ability to lift you up to let you see things that you've never seen before, to help you when you're hurting, to give strength to you when you feel weak. Those words have the capacity to reshape worlds. And so John begins his story just like the Genesis writer in his account in the beginning. God, through his word, is creating the world. And so it's this context that John is writing and he begins with this story about the word because words are powerful tools. And he wants to tell you about these signs and there's seven of them that happen as this progresses. He wants to tell you about these signs because these signs are pointing you towards a new world. I mean, that's what signs do, correct? You're, you're driving down the highway, and there are speed limit signs that help you govern the speed that you're driving and help you to know how fast you should be going. And there are signs that tell you, hey, there are historical landmarks to the side. There are signs that tell you, hey, this is the town you are in, or this is the town you are coming to, and this is how far it is. And so as we walk through these seven signs, I want you to notice some things along the way. I want you to notice the characters. I want you to notice the time. I want you to notice the little details that maybe you've missed. Because all of these stories and all of these signs take place within this context of an old world. The the story we're going to look at this morning takes place at a wedding. The next story takes place at a temple, a rabbi in Jerusalem, a well in Samaria, on the Sabbath, the Passover, the tabernacle, and then the festival of dedication. 
which today is called Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. These stories, these signs, these miracles all happen within a context. And he wants you to see these events, this social structure through new eyes. Have you ever been driving one direction that you drive all the time? You always go the same direction. But then, for some reason, you go a different direction another time, and you begin to notice things going the other way that you had never seen before because you're looking at it from a new direction. That's what John is trying to help these people do. I I know you know about the temple, and I know you know about the rabbinical system, and I know you know about the tabernacle, I know you know about Passover, but I want you to see these from a different direction. I, I want you to understand what is happening and what these signs mean. And so the very first sign that he talks about happens at a wedding. And it answers several questions for us. Three questions in particular. One, who Jesus came to be. What Jesus came to do. And what does Jesus have to offer? It's the story of water to wine that answers these questions so potently and so powerfully. Here's who Jesus came to be. Here's what Jesus came to do. Here's what Jesus has to offer. And so this wedding feast, this banquet, takes place. And there's really two levels of the story. There's the simplistic level of Jesus provides a need that was not being met. They were out of wine at this wedding, and he gives them wine to drink. And not only does he give them wine, he gives them the best wine. He helps the party continue. But in this story, there's a deeper level. So verse 7 of chapter 2, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw out and take it to the master of the banquet. Draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. And he did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn out the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And so the story revolves around some traditions and practices. And I want to get real bogged down in all of the cultural nuances of a wedding during first century um, Israel. But this person that receives the wine is the master of the banquet. And basically, the master of the banquet is what we would call today like the master of ceremonies. They're, they're the person who is hired to come in and keep the party going to bring life to it, to bring excitement, to bring enthusiasm. If you want a great picture, Burt Brack. (laughs) Hair and all, okay? He's the person that we bring in, and we want him to bring life to the party. 
We want them to bring life and enthusiasm. And if things die, if the wedding doesn't continue to have this excitement and this life, then it's on him. It's his fault. Not, not Burke, the master of the banquet. And they've run out of wine. They've run out and now the party could die. The, the party could be over. And so Jesus has these servants draw water, takes it to the master of the banquet. They taste it. And they realize that this is the best wine, and he saved the best wine until the end. See, Jesus came to be the master of the banquet. He came to provide what was needed. He came to provide life for the party. And as we read this morning in Isaiah 25, that there is this feast on that day, and it, it's described so often as this place where we will feast, where we will celebrate, where we will eat together. Isaiah says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's always described in this setting of a banquet. And you have this banquet in first century Israel that is dying out and the wine is gone and yet Jesus steps into the picture because he came to be the master of the banquet and he provides exactly what is needed to give life to the party. He comes to provide exactly what was needed. Jesus came to be the master of the banquet. But if you go back earlier in the story, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Last week, my wife asked me to change Kaylee's diaper, and I quoted the scripture to her. <clears throat> and she did not like it. <laughs> so there's this wedding, and they're out of wine, and Jesus' mother has this request. Jesus, they're, they're out. Can you do something to fix the problem? And his response to his mother seems a little bit short, doesn't it? Woman, why do you involve me in these things? My hour has not yet come. And most of the time we read that and we think, well, what does he mean, my hour has not yet come? There, there's a couple of things, I think, on Jesus' mind. And I think they're things that are pretty natural to understand. Because when you go to a wedding, one of the things that's probably on your mind is your wedding. If you were married and you're watching um, other people get married, you tend to think back to your wedding, right? You think about the day that you entered into these vows, into this commitment, into this covenant. You, you think about what it was like for you. 
If you're going to get married and you're engaged, you think, here's what I want my wedding. I don't want to do that. I definitely want to do that. I like that, but I'm going to do it like... You have all these thoughts about your own wedding. And then if you're single and you aren't dating anyone, been there, it can be kind of frustrating, can it? Because it just reminds you of how far you have to go. When, when I first went into youth ministry in Cleburne, I was not dating anyone. There were no prospects. I was thinking, I'm going to have to go some other place if I'm ever going to meet anyone. And I would go to weddings and I would think, this is never, I'm probably the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Rest of my life, I'm going to be single. And then you go to weddings and it reminds you, oh yeah, I'm single, great. And I'm not dating anyone, I'm alone. And I think I've told you this before, but at one wedding I went to, there was a lady at our church named Irene. And Irene comes up to me during the wedding, and she is so sweet, but she says, you're next. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not. I'm not dating anyone. I don't have, I mean, it just reminds you, like, how powerful words are. Because what was supposed to be an encouraging word ended up as a really discouraging word. I mean, put yourself in in the opposite situation. I would never, never go to a funeral. (laughs) You're next. (laughs) But what is on Jesus' mind is his wedding. What is on Jesus' mind is his wedding. See, when he says, my hour has not yet come, he's not talking about, hey, it's not time to perform the first miracle. He he has something else in mind. In John 7, 30, he says this, and this they tried to see and at this they tried to seize him but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come 820 um, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come 12 verse 23 they were, Jesus replied the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified and then in 13 it says Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. There's this transition point in the book of John where it moves from these signs to the end of Jesus' life. And the first really 11 or 12 chapters are these signs all pointing to Jesus as the glorified God made flesh. And then there's this transition to Jesus' last week. And his hour, when he tells his mother in the beginning, my hour has not yet come, what he's referring to is the hour of his death. My time, my hour, when I must 
leave this world, my hour, when I must provide what's needed for the wedding banquet, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to die. The other thing I think that's on his mind besides just simply his wedding is that at his wedding, he is the one who has to provide the wine. See, my hour has not yet come. Is Jesus saying, well, at the end, I'm going to provide, provide the wine for the banquet. I'm going to provide the wine for the feast, but that hour, that hour has not come. I, I will provide what's needed for this wedding banquet. I will provide what's needed for the consummation of this new world. This new world that's going to be created in the midst of this old world that's dying away. This old world with its systems and with its signs, with the, the tabernacle and the festival of dedication and the Passover and this wedding feast. The time will come when I need to provide the wine for my wedding. But that hour has not yet come. And as this transition takes place, the setting of the book of John changes. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did it through his word. And then he took man and he placed him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And so John wants you to understand this. In John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Then a little further down in the story in verse 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. And then Jesus dies. He's on the cross, he's buried, and at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb which no one had ever been laid, and then after the resurrection, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for, thinking he was the gardener? She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. The context of the story, the location of the story changes because God is creating a new world from his word. He needs us to get back to the garden. And as the garden story begins, you have Jesus betraying the word. And in that garden, there is sin and vulnerability and nakedness and shame and betrayal and hurt and death. But out of that garden, God breathes into 
his word, the breath of life once again. And what was once dead is now alive. What was once dead is brought back to life. As God breathes life into his word. And his word once again lives. See, Jesus walks through the hour of his death to provide wine for the wedding. And this wedding was the consummation of a whole new world. And in this old world, what you used to make yourself clean was the ceremonial washing. This water that was taken, that was turned to wine, comes from these containers that were used to make people ceremonially clean. But this new wine would not just cleanse the outside, but it would purify the inside as well. And it wouldn't be something you had to keep continuing to come back to year after year, week after week, day after day, that it was done continually and completely. See, in the story, we understand that a wedding has a purpose. A wedding is where two become one. And in this wedding, what we're incapable of doing joining ourselves to God, Jesus does. What we cannot do, become one with God in his flesh, John says in the beginning, the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. See, we could not take on God's flesh to become one with him. And so he took on our flesh. And he entered back into the broken garden to redeem it and renew it and restore it. He he entered back into the brokenness of this world to create a new world. He entered into the garden that had gone bad and entered into the garden to make it new. He came to redeem. He came to provide this feast. See, they're drinking at this celebration, the cup of celebration. And Jesus knows that when his hour comes... He'll have to drink the cup of sorrow in the midst of celebration so that you and I can drink the cup of celebration in the midst of sorrow. And that's what Jesus offers. He offers an invitation to a feast. He offers an invitation to a banquet. He offers an invitation to a wedding. 
And in this wedding, the two are going to become one. He's going to become like us so that we can be like him. He enters into your world, into your brokenness, into your hurt, into your uncertainty, into your pain, into your sorrow, into your death. And he drinks the cup so you don't have to. And then he walks out of the garden. The garden where sin and death once reigned. A garden that has been made new. Because God was creating the world through his word. And he invites you to the feast. He invites you to the wedding banquet of the Lamb to come because a place is prepared for you. And the cup that you now drink is the wine that he has provided because he has saved the best to last. But you need to understand, as John said, this is just the first sign that revealed his glory. This is just the reveal. It's not the release. It's just the reveal. When I was in high school, the very end of high school, um, we'd been hearing for several years that George Lucas was going to um, recreate these prequel or make these prequels to the Star Wars movies. And so in 1998, fall of 98, winter of 99, he comes out and you start seeing these reveals, these movie trailers of the first Star Wars that's going to be remade. It was, the, was it The Phantom Menace was number one? There's these reveals of what's going to happen. And so my friends and I, we started talking like, well, we want to go when it's released. We, we want to be there to see it when it actually comes out and we can see it. And so we get tickets for the, the premiere and we're going to go at midnight to this show. And so everyone's excited. And, and my friends are bigger Star Wars fans than I am. I'm just kind of going along because. And so we get there for the release. And 20 minutes into the, the movie, the release, one of our party fell asleep. And slept through the entire movie. Might have been me. There, there is a difference, though, in the reveal and the release. The, the reveal is just showing you. And it's pointing you to the signs of this new world. But then there was going to be a release that would come in the morning. It would come in the morning in the form of a new world that was being created as death was overcome. It would be a wedding banquet that you would be invited to because sin and death had lost its power. 
It, it would be a wedding banquet that you got to come and feast to and feast at. And the bridegroom would wait in expectation for you to come. I remember my wedding. And I remember standing up on stage and the back doors opening. And I remember seeing my wife standing at the back of the auditorium and her face just glowing and thinking, This, this is the day that I get to marry the most beautiful woman in the whole world. She's not here, so if you want to say, Cam, you're lucky on Facebook today. That <laughs> I remember the doors opening and thinking, this, this is the most unbelievable day in the world. And when Jesus looks at you, more importantly, when he looks at us collectively as the church, He sees you the same way. This is my beautiful bride. And I have been waiting for this day since the beginning. And since the beginning, I have known what my hour would mean. It it would mean my wedding would come and I would get to see my bride and she would get to drink from my blood and be made new. And today we simply offer that invitation to come to the feast, to come to the banquet that has been prepared for you, to come just as you are, without having to change, without expectation, just to come because you are loved. Because the invitation has never been changed and then you can come to to Christ. It has always been come to Christ and you will be changed. Come. Just as you are because the feast has been prepared for you. The wine has been provided and Christ awaits his bride. We see, we see with our eyes that Christ is making this world new. But we also understand that just as we offer our hands to engage this world, Christ has called his church to be those people. Notice in the story, it is not Jesus who serves the wine. It is the servants he called to serve it. And you and I have been given this responsibility as followers of Jesus to serve this wine to a world who is thirsting for it so badly. So this morning, whatever your need, come to Christ, come to the banquet it has been prepared, surrender your life and enter into him through baptism, 
or simply come because you've forgotten about the invitation. You've forgotten the life that you have. You've forgotten how much God is passionately consumed with you. But whatever your need, come. If we could just simply pray for you as well. We'll have ministry staff, elders around this room. We would love to do whatever we could to help you this morning. So come while we